Psalm 121, a song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade and your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The word of the Lord. Over the course of the next several weeks, we're doing a sermon series on, on the Psalms of Ascent, which are Psalm 120 through 134. And these were the songs that were sung by the pilgrims as they were on their way to Jerusalem. And, and the late great Eugene Peterson plumbed them for their depths on what they have to say about the life of discipleship, which itself can be categorized as a pilgrimage. In, in the New Testament, in Hebrews and in 1 Peter, Christians are referred to as strangers and pilgrims. And the great Protestant epic about discipleship by John Bunyan is titled what? Pilgrim's Progress, an allegory about the, the main character, Christian, um, and his journey toward the celestial city. And so Peterson sees in these psalms all the great themes, or most of the great themes, of discipleship. And so he's going to be the primary guide that we're interacting with as we read these texts and see what God has to say to us through them about following Jesus which is what discipleship is all about, which is what the church is all about. And so last week, we began with Psalm 120. And the message there was that the, the pilgrimage of faith starts with repentance, which is getting fed up with the status quo, about living in the world of Psalm 120. And the world of Psalm 120 is a world of lies and a world of conflict, and it's a land that's far away from God. It's hostile to the life of faith. And so repentance says crying out from God for help and saying, I've got to get out of here. I've got to try something different. I've got to move from where I am to where God wants me to be. And so repentance is our no to the world along with our yes to Christ. It's the first step in the journey. But today we move to Psalm 121, which is, I mean, outside of Psalm 23, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 121, it has to be the most beloved and well-known psalm in the, the Psalter. That's what they call the book of Psalms. If you're, you know, talking fancy church speak, the Psalter. And if you remember from growing up, maybe Salty, the singing songbook. Does anyone remember Salty? Yep, 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 yep. And Bob Brody actually once dressed up as Salty, the singing songbook for Vacation Bible School. And... He was amazing. Uh, that costume has to be lying around somewhere still. Bob was an amazing blue singing songbook, and he sang with his guitar. So whenever I think of the word Psalter and Psalm, I think of Bob Brody <laughs> with blue face paint and a giant blue Bible book on himself. And so, but it begins, it begins with these beautiful words. I mean, the King James, unsurpassed for the poetry of the translation, I will lift up mine eyes to the hills from whence cometh my help. And so this is this great psalm in the midst of adversity, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of uncertainty. It's this great psalm of assurance and trust in the Lord. 
And Peterson says that the main theme of this psalm is is providence. This is a psalm about God's providence. And providence is not just the capital of Rhode Island, but Providence, Rhode Island, was named Providence, Rhode Island for a reason. Roger Williams, Reformed Baptist minister, he, he, he got kicked out of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. You're in the New World. Where This is not a good situation to get kicked out of civilization. Where are we going to go? They found this place, Providence. So he said, God's providence has provided this place for us. And so providence is this theological concept with a rich history that Christians use to describe the relationship between God and creation. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about providence. What is the relationship between God and creation? And our trust in God's providence, our understanding of God's providence, it's the presupposition for the pilgrimage of faith because without God's providence... The journey is impossibly dangerous, and we can be certain that we will lose our way. Providence provides the pilgrim with with proper theological grounding for the road that lies ahead. You know, and put yourself in the shoes of our pilgrim, Psalm 120. No, I'm repenting. I'm far away from God. I'm going to go to where I need to go to get close to Him. Right? So the... Our pilgrim, she's repented, she's fed up, she's pulled up stakes and is going to God. She has decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. And then what happens? Does life automatically get easier? Does everything come up roses? You know, is everything sunshine and lollipops and rainbows and unicorns? It's not. And that can be scary and discouraging because we thought, well, when we were fed up with where we were, so going to where we are supposed to be going, that should be better. That should be easier. Shouldn't it? At least for us. I mean, shouldn't things get better when you leave the land of Psalm 120? Lord, deliver me from, you know, the lies. And when I speak peace, they talk about war. Shouldn't just leaving that behind automatically make things better and easier? As you head from the land of Psalm 120, You know, Meshach and Kedar, these distant lands, and head towards Zion. And I mean, doesn't Psalm 120 kind of suggest, or Psalm 121 suggest as much? It says, He will not let your foot be moved. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. All evil, He will keep your life. And so we read that as a wonderful word of assurance, but then we can also ask, how come we know people, wonderful, good, faithful Christian people who it seems haven't been kept from all evil? People who have been struck horribly by evil. I think of of the scores of Christians who were slaughtered by those ISIS-inspired militants on Easter morning in Sri Lanka. And there was, I was listening to a podcast interview with a Sri Lankan pastor, and, and he recounted a story that he had heard about uh, children who were in a Sunday school class just before services. And, and part of the lesson, I think, was talking about, like, you know, the truth of the resurrection and the testimony. And part of the, you know, validation of the disciples' belief in the resurrection was the fact that, you know, they were willing to die for their faith. They were willing to die for this claim that he is risen, he is risen. Indeed, and so, you know, the teacher asked the class, well, how many of you would be willing to do that? How many of you would be willing to die for your faith? And all the children in the class raised their hands. And then when they're going from their Sunday school class to the church service, a suicide bomber detonates his vest, and half of the children in that class died. I mean, it's unthinkable. 
And so what happened? What happened to Psalm 121? You know, that the God who watches over us will neither slumber nor sleep. Doesn't it seem like God fell asleep on Easter morning in Sri Lanka? So we can say, well, either the psalm it doesn't apply to them, they're outside the scope of God's providential care, or the psalm is wrong. In which case, one is tempted to plumb back, plunge back into despair at the, at the sheer meaninglessness of it all. I don't think that either of those is the case. Something else must be going on here. And so we have to look closely at the text to see what that something else might be. The psalm opens, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Other translations say, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. And so the question I have when I read that is, what is the psalmist? Why is the psalmist looking at the mountains, the hills? What is he looking for? What is he expecting to see, you know, in them, thar hills? And commentators are, are deeply divided on this question. Some of them say, he's looking up at the mountains and he's terrified. And others say he's looking at the mountains, and that's a, a solid sign of assurance. Now, on, on the dark side of the ledger, I can see it makes sense. You're a pilgrim on a long journey, and, and you're going towards Zion, but you're entering into mountainous country, and, and mountain paths are dangerous. I mean, if you've ever driven a car on a mountain, you know, you, they're sort of like white knuckle driving because it's full of switchbacks. And so, yeah, they're not driving cars, but there's ample places to get lost or go off the road or stumble and fall down a cliff. And, 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 and it's also a prime place, you know, just around every corner there could be a robber. There could be someone looking to do your harm. I mean, that's what happened in the parable of the Good Samaritan. This person was walking on a mountain road. They were attacked and left for dead. There's a reason that resonated. The hills were also places of, of pagan worship. In, in the Old Testament history, they're called the, the high places. And if you're reading through 1st, 2nd Kings, you know, you'll see time and time again that Israel's kings are condemned because they didn't destroy. They let the high places go. And the high places were places where sacred uh, prostitution took place, illicit sacrifices, incantations, idolatrous worship. There was, there was something occult in that sense about the mountains. Like what the uh, new, early New Englanders feared took place out in the dark mysterious forests. And so the hills can be these dark, scary, dangerous, even evil places. When you lift up your eyes to the hills, you could see something to be afraid of. And that's one thing that threatens to get us off track when, when we don't understand God's providence, and that's fear. Fear that causes us to lose trust in God. And fear that can ultimately cause us to retreat, to retreat from God, to retreat from the community of the faithful, to retreat from other people, to see them not as people but as, as threats, to retreat from engaging with and serving the world. And fear is powerful, and fear can be good. Fear can help us get ourselves out of dangerous situations. Fear has a use, to be sure. But when we look to the hills and we cower in fear and that discourages us from discipleship, when it causes us to run back in the direction we came from, to turn away from God, to go back to Psalm 120, the world of conflict, the world of lies, to participate in those, 
then we know we're, we're not dealing with healthy fear, but we're dealing with an unhealthy fear. We don't understand God's providence. And why would we be afraid as, as disciples? I mean, there's lots of reasons. Some people live in, in cultures where Christians are uh, the minority. Like Sri Lanka, we saw that now you would have a reason to fear if you lived in that country. Or you, if you lived in, in uh, China at this point in time and you were part of an unregistered church, you'd have reason to fear. There's things to be afraid of. In our culture, we have a lot less, you know, government, state reasons to be afraid. But you might be afraid for social reasons, right? If, if people find out you're a, a sort of a serious sort of Christian, not just a casual one. I mean, casual, respectful, responsible, you know, type of, of religion never hurt or helped or offended much of anyone. But, but people find out you're a serious sort of Christian. Mike Nelson has said, if you use the term, I'm a Christ follower, that sort of gives people the heebie-jeebies sometimes, you know? Like, if you say that, like, you've maybe said something that makes people, like, start backing into the hedges, you know, doing that sort of thing. Like, that, that can be afraid. You don't want people to respond to you like that. You want them to like and respect you. But maybe we're also just afraid of what's going to happen when something bad happens in our lives. Does that mean that God isn't real or that God has left us and, and then we're on our own? We're also just afraid of the unknown because we can see that life is, is so much of life is tragic. I can't remember where I heard it, but someone said, you know, that tragedy is just comedy plus time. Because no matter how happy things may be, might be right now, the other shoe, eventually that's going to drop. And, you know, we're all in this thing together and none of us are getting out alive. And, and, and so we're afraid that when those tragic moments arrive, they're going to happen it will be too great for us to bear. I think there was just an article in, in the Atlantic that was talking about there was the moral case against you shouldn't have children, it said, because human life is too terrible. And so um, you're just inflicting suffering on yourself by having children because your kids, what, what's going to happen? They're going to disappoint you. They're going to hurt you. And then their lives are going to be filled with disappointment and pain. This person might have been writing for the case for human extinction, right? If it's that bad, I guess we should just, you know, get the doomsday machine running and end it all anyways. But that's a certain kind of despair that this perspective, a lack of understanding of God's providence, can lead us to. It's this fear that drives us to paralysis, desperation, despair, retreat. That might be one thing that the psalmist is seeing when he lifts his eyes to the hills. But in lifting his eyes to the hills, he could also be looking at good things. If the journey is to Jerusalem, then you're seeing the, the foothills surrounding Zion. That's exciting. It's like when you drive west to the Rocky Mountains, towards the Rocky Mountains, and you get your first glimpse of the, 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 the mountains in the distance. That's exciting. That's fun. There's, you go through Nebraska, I mean, which is a wonderful, beautiful, lovely state, one of our finest states. It is. It's really a great state. Love Nebraska. But, you know, it's a and, and west, eastern Colorado. Like, that's a long drive when you're trying to get, but you see the mountains and you get excited. You go, oh, there's, there's majesty. There's, there's, there's awe. They're solid. They're majestic. And in the Old Testament, mountains are, are places where God meets his people in powerful ways. There's revelation. There's deliverance. There's God's power and glory. Those are on mountains, too. And along these lines, when he was reading this passage and commenting on it, John Calvin, or, or uh, I'll call him by his French name, Jean Calvin, said, 
by mountains, the prophet means whatever is great or excellent in the world. And what he teaches is that we ought to account all such favors as nothing. But Calvin, as he so often does, was just really riffing on Augustine on this point, who said that, you know, it's good, lift up your eyes to the mountains. Mountains are signs of God's blessing and favor, but, but don't stop your eyes there. Keep looking up. And so mountains can also be any good thing that, that keeps us from looking all the way up to God as our ultimate source of help. You know, things that God has given us, but that, but that we don't acknowledge as coming from Him, and, and we ultimately put our trust in. And this could be our families or a relationship. This could be our career, our business, pursuit of education, health and wellness, you know, social, political activism. None of these things are bad. They're good. They're good, but none of them will provide us with a secure enough footing for the life of faith. They might be mountains, but they're only mountains. And if we focus on the mountains only, then we can run the risk of never moving from, you know, we just take these things for granted and, and, and we don't leverage them with gratitude for God's kingdom purposes. And so mountains are just mountains. They're not the living God. They cannot offer us what the Lord does. And so the psalmist asks, from where does my help come from? The Lord who made heaven and earth, which is just his way of saying everything. Everything belongs to God, including us. And Peterson says the promise of the psalm is not that we shall never stub our toes, but that no illness, no injury, no accident, no distress will have power over us. That is, we'll be able to separate us from God's purposes in us. No literature is more realistic and honest in the face of the harsh facts of life than the Bible. At no time is there the faintest suggestion that the life of faith exempts us from difficulties. What it promises us is preservation from all the evil in them. And there's one word that shows up time and again in this psalm in describing the help that the Lord provides, and it occurs eight times, and it's this word, keep. The Lord will keep us. It's actually the same word uh, that's used in the fourth commandment in Deuteronomy, which if you've seen the big Lebowski, you might know this word too. Shomer, Shomer Shabbat. Keep the Sabbath, honor the Sabbath, observe the Sabbath, guard the Sabbath. And so in Psalms 121, ultimately what the providence of God means for the pilgrimage of faith is that we can trust God as our guardian. God is the guardian watching over every little aspect of our lives, day or night, coming or going, sunny or shady, even the little stuff like falling down on the road. And that God guards us doesn't mean clearly that bad things won't happen to us, but God will keep us from all evil. God will keep the poison that is on the outside from infecting us on the inside. And Peterson says beautifully on this, all the water in the ocean cannot sink a ship unless it gets inside. Nor can all the trouble in the world harm us unless it gets within us. That is the promise of the psalm. God guards you from every evil. And so the difference that, that, that providence makes is in our understanding of how God relates to the world. 
And, and the church has always faced, uh, the world has really faced uh, two temptations of false alternatives in this arena. The first thinks of God as completely distant and disinterested from the world. If you're reading sort of old, uh, older theology and commentaries, they talk about the Epicurean philosophy, but we would just say it's sort of the deist understanding of God. You know, God is sort of the one who got the ball rolling, you know, first mover, first cause, and then just steps back and says, let's see what happens. Or God as the watchmaker who winds the watch, sets it going, and leaves it, leaves us to our own devices. This is the God of, you know, Thomas Jefferson. And the only problem with this God from a Christian perspective is it bears no resemblance to the God we meet in Scripture, who not only made heaven and earth, but is intimately involved with it who became flesh in it. This is not the far-off, distant, absentee landlord. I've got better things to deal with, God. And so deism is one temptation. You know, the deist says, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Well, nowhere. Because God is so distant or disinterested that he doesn't care. In fact, maybe it's just better for all of us if we pretend that this God doesn't exist. So the one temptation is God is distant, doesn't care, has nothing to do with it. The other temptation faced by the church then and now is pantheism, equating God and the world, conflating the, the, crea- the creator and creation. God is everywhere and everything. The divine is all one unitary reality. And so if our psalmist were a pantheist, he'd say, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? It comes from the hills because they are just as much a part of the divine reality as I am. And deism and, and pantheism are alive today as ever as alternatives to providence. Deism in many ways is our civic religion, and it feeds into a kind of a functional atheism that is the religion of our materialistic scientific age. There might be some kind of higher power, but it's largely indifferent to us. And pantheism, the, the God and everything, it, it, it's, you know, maybe the faith of our more crunchy, earth-loving set. And both of them get at an important aspect of the truth about providence. The deist understands, well, the creature-creation distinction. God is God, we are not. But the deist pushes God too far away. And, and the pantheist gets at the intimate relationship between God and creation, But the pantheist goes too far in absorbing everything into God, such that even evil things are part of God. Instead of God keeping us from all evil, the pantheist God actually makes evil a part of us. It's been said that we live on a Goldilocks planet, right? Everything is just right so that we can have a life here. And the Christian doctrine of providence, it gives us a Goldilocks understanding of the relationship between God and creation. Distinct, but not distant. Involved, but not absorbed into. And so Psalm 121, it helps us hit that sweet spot that our help comes from the Lord. The one who made, but who who still intimately cares for heaven and earth. And as is fitting... For this series, the last word goes to Eugene. The Christian life is going to God. In going to God, Christians travel the same ground that everyone else walks on, 
breathe the same air, drink the same water, shop in the same stores, read the same news, are citizens under the same governments, pay the same prices for groceries and gasoline, fear the same dangers, are subject to the same pressures, get the same distresses, are buried in the same ground. The difference is that each step we walk, each breath we breathe, we know that we are preserved by God. We know that we are accompanied by God. We know that we are ruled by God. And therefore, no matter what doubts we endure or accidents we experience, the Lord will guard us from every evil. He guards our very life. Or to put it in the words of Jesus, surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.